Mel. And Kel. And this is It's Called Culture. Ever heard of it? It's called a microbial culture. Ever heard of it? We're doing a little play on words today with our <laughs> culture. We did not change the name of our podcast, guys. Don't worry. We're going to talk a little bit about some dairy products, some milk, some cheese, maybe a little eggs. You would be surprised to know the amount of drama and ridiculous stories that we have surrounding these topics. <laughs> it sounds like a boring topic, but I promise you, I promise you it is not. There's lots of good stuff here. There's some messed up stuff. There's some really funny stuff, nostalgic stuff. Real, It's really good. So we're going to just kick it right off. Our social media roundup. When I first joined TikTok, it was like the golden days of TikTok during COVID. There was a creator named Lubalin. He was making these videos based on internet drama. So he would take like just some Facebook back and forth conversation that he found that he was calling internet drama. He would compose a song and make a whole music video out of it. And they were hysterical. And this was actually not his first original one. There was a couple before this one that were really funny. And then by the time he did this one, he was so popular because the videos were going so viral that he had Jimmy Fallon in this video and Allison Brie was in this video. Oh, that's awesome. This particular one was about blue cheese. Somebody had just put this post up and was like, what's your favorite salad dressing? And all these people start responding. Every time somebody said blue cheese, this woman, her name was Kathy. He like blocked out the last name. But she would go in every time somebody said blue cheese. And I'm sure there was like hundreds of comments on this thing. She would write blue cheese has mold in it. And she would write that every single time. Like it was her mission. The time to have on your hands. Seriously. So like call it every single person that says blue cheese. Like she was like. Batman, she was saving Gotham City. She was going around to every single person and be like, Blue cheese has mold in it. Blue cheese has mold in it. Blue cheese has mold in it. (laughs) She must be retired and home on her Facebook all day. They made it into the catchiest song and it's just hysterical. And you have to go just look up the video. It's Lubalin. L U B A L I N, I believe is the spelling. Just look that up with Blue Cheese and you will find the video. And it's hysterical. But as funny as it is, does Kathy have a point? Because <laughs> I did look it up as well. And it did say it does have mold. But it's safe mold. <laughs> if you pick up a thing of blue cheese in the grocery store, it literally like mold is one of the ingredients. When I was reading it, it looks like it says like penicillin. But I always say I know that's not what it is. That's an antibiotic. <laughs> but it looks like it's like that type of mole that's in our blue cheese. The blue part, right? That's just mold? Maybe? I guess. <laughs> Kathy ain't wrong. Like, why the fuck are we eating mold out here? Are you a blue cheese or a ranch girl? I like both. I do too. But I'm a blue cheese. I'm not like obsessed with either. Like my husband's obsessed with ranch. I'm not obsessed with either. I'm obsessed with blue cheese. You are? Yeah. Like I like it with my wings. Do you like like a wet blue cheese dressing or do you ever do just like the crumbles, like the dry blue cheese crumbles? Those are a lot. Those are really strong. I like the wet to put my wings in, dunk dunk my wings in it. But I don't mind like a little crumble, like on a charcuterie board, like like the little stick in it. (laughs) and eat a blue cheese you're just eating mold you're just eating mold apparently like are um i think there's a lot of cheeses like that obviously like uh is gorgonzola like the same kind of vibe gorgonzola it's got to be moldy right that's a good question yeah mold ripened cheeses include the blue veined cheeses for example roquefort blue from france gorgonzola from italy brick munster monterey the united states Limburger from Belgium and Stilton from the UK, and the surface ripened Camembert and Brie from France. 
All right, so we got ourselves a bunch of fungi cheeses. Oh, this is what you're talking about. So what fungus is in a gorgonzola cheese? Penicillum rocaforti. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I was not going to attempt to say that. Why is blue cheese mold okay? Because it comes from the same family as the antibiotic penicillin. (laughs) Whoa! I'm a scientist! (laughs) Blue cheese typically contains penicillium rocaforti, which is not dangerous to humans and does not produce toxins themselves. So can you cure yourself with a bunch of blue cheese? You have like a nuanza. Can you just eat? <laughs> if you can't get to the toxins, okay, antibiotics, you just fucking take down some blue cheese. <laughs> According to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, the penicillin <laughs> cultures that create blue cheese do not produce penicillin. Oh. Therefore, it is safe for people with penicillin allergies to eat blue cheese as long as the cheese is not spoiled. Because if it's spoiled, <laughs> will it have penicillin in it then? Okay, so one time I took, you know, the shredded cheese that comes in the bag. This is this haunts me to this day. I had some in my fridge. And as a teenager, I was just an animal. And I would just go in like hand in the bag and just pull it out and just eat it in my mouth. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Dirty fingers right into the bag and I just eat it. And that's like my biggest pet peeve now is I'm like, nobody's fingers goes in the cheese. <laughs> You got to pour it out. You don't put your fingers into the cheese bag. But when I was a teen, one time I went in and it just I was it was such a habit. I would always just, oh, I'm just going to grab my my fistful of cheese and put it in my mouth. And this one particular time the cheese had molded over and I didn't know. So I went in for my fistful, put it in my mouth. And then I looked in the bag and it was like all moldy all over the shredded cheese. I was like, like I just (laughs) was like never recovered from that. Do you like check your cheese out every time because of that one incident? I inspect it visually. I sniff it. I smell it. No hands go in the bag. Like I've been forever changed from that one incident. So it's kind of cute that Allison's last name is Brie and she's doing a video about cheese. But (laughs) I saw that. I was like, is this like a queen? The queen? Why can't I say queen? dink? Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. (laughs) Just say it. Queenky dink. Was that a quitting kading? No, quitting kading. <laughs> I'm not cutting it. Allison Bree was that whole quitting kading for Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> Just need to hear you say quitting kading. I or... can't say it. Quitting <laughs> kading. Um. So the other videos, just real quick, that he did that I love. His like original one was about a Facebook Marketplace post. I read them. I didn't see the video yet. I haven't seen the videos for those. Oh, they're so good. They're so catchy, though. So if you watch, I'm warning anybody. So if you go and you watch these little music videos that he does on the Internet drama, you will sing them for like a year straight. Like you will not (laughs) be able to stop. You won't get them out of your head. They're so catchy. I think the first one he did was a Facebook marketplace thing where somebody had something up for sale and this person messaged them. Hi, is this still available? And the person said, yes, it is. And then the person responded back please stop contacting me i'm sleeping and then they were like you contacted me and they were like if you don't stop contacting me i'm gonna call the attorney general it was just whole thing it just escalated so fast and he made a video out of that and that was hysterical and then the other one that i really liked was a woman went on facebook this older woman and she was talking about how I think it was Carol stole her broccoli casserole recipe and that like Carol was such a bitch. You read that one about the broccoli? Yeah. So there's a whole song about this woman getting her broccoli casserole recipe stolen. (laughs) Carol's a broccoli recipe stealing bitch is what it says. So good. So good. So I just wanted to bring that up because it was about cheese and it was going to kind of kick off our whole microbial culture episode. (laughs) Look at that. We're already talking about antibiotics, so it worked out <laughs> hand in hand. Just moving in. We're, go- we're in microbial culture topic. So I'm going to start on milk because my husband, he's on his like health kick thing. And he one of the things that he brought up, obviously, he does like no seed oils and all that shit for regular food. But then 
we started getting our meats from a local farm. So the next thing he wants to do is switch to raw milk instead of pasteurized milk, like just getting it directly from a local farm. Apparently, he did some research on his own. He started telling me about the history of pasteurization. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, it's so <laughs> fucked up. Like, anytime you start to dig into like this shit and like why we do stuff, certain things, it never leads anywhere good. It's always just like really effed up. Are these the conversations I'm looking forward to when I one day meet somebody and get married? Are these the conversations I'm going to have at dinner? <laughs> yeah. So eventually you'll be having conversations about the New York City sanitation system around the dinner table, the history of pasteurization in New York City. <laughs> I love it. To make a long story short, the way he explained it to me, and then I'll kind of give you a little follow up based on what I just read about it. But the way he explained it to me was that like, Originally, there were cows like in the cities or whatever, like the, in the city centers, there were mm-hmm. little farms where they had the dairy. And it was right there because there was no refrigeration and shit at this time. Right. So you're just you had to get the milk from the cow immediately to the people who were consuming it. As the cities became overpopulated, late 1800s, early 1900s, like immigration is big during this time. These cities start booming become more dense urban centers and they can no longer just like have all these cows roaming around in the middle of the city things just become a little tighter and they need more cows because there's more people and whatever and so the conditions the condition the condition get a little shady for the (laughs) for the milk production and it becomes instead of like you know a few cows grazing on a pasture in a little green park all of a sudden you're now well let me just put it this way The way my husband described it to me was they were garbage feeding the cows, basically just feeding them garbage. And then the milk was really fucked up and then giving that milk to people. And I'm sure there was some garbage feeding going on. But the way I read it was they found ways to like combine their milk making with other things such as like distilleries. Like so they'd be producing whiskey at a distillery. And one of the byproducts would be the whiskey mash or something that comes out as a byproduct of this process. And they would literally just like bring the cows to the distillery and like set up these little like stalls for the cows. The mash was just going directly to the cows at the distillery. And they had no like they're just in a stall. They had no they couldn't move around. They're just there just like dying. Wait, why were they putting it in the cows? That's what they were eating. That's what they were feeding them. Oh, okay. It was a way to like feed the cow because you didn't have all this grass and hay for them to graze on. So sad. (laughs) Basically, you're using like a a waste byproduct from the distillery. Yeah, from something else that they were doing. Feeding it to the cow. So now you have the cows like in these unsanitary conditions at like a distillery processing plant and you're just feeding them like the byproducts. And it was called like swill, swill milk. The milk was so bad that it had like a blue tint to it. So the milk was like blue. The farmers used to be like, oh, nobody's going to want to drink fucking blue milk. Like they're going to know something's wrong with it. So they would fucking put shit in it. They would add additives and like not tell anyone. They'd put plaster of Paris in there. Fucking plaster. They put chalk. They put all kinds of shit. Charcoal. Just shit in there to absorb the fucking blue color. My face right now horrifying right yeah (laughs) a combination of like the cow was already sick and that's why you have this fucking weird blue milk coming out of it so like you're already passing fucking diseases because these cows were like barely standing up in these stalls like they were just falling over because they were so diseased on top of it you're drinking plaster of paris also oh god so like people were dying it was a health problem they were losing citizens at a rapid clip. Babies. Oh, they, I think they said that there was even like residual alcohol content to the milk because of the whole distillery process. So like the babies were like drunk. Like, yeah, fetal alcohol. Yeah. I don't know. I read a lot of different articles. I read a lot of stuff, but that seemed kind of fucked up. So then there was this big push for pasteurization. They had been apparently they were pasteurizing beer like anheuser-busch was like industrially pasteurizing beer long before they thought to pasteurize milk 
<laughs> just shows you the state of the nation. Priorities. They had invented pasteurization or whatever, and they were like, oh, we're going to push for this. So it's like, okay, I get it. Because they were like, okay, we're just going to boil off the milk. We're going to boil off all that shit, all those toxins, all that shit that's not supposed to be there. But it's like, why don't we fix the conditions? Why don't we fix the underlying conditions <laughs> instead of just having to be like, oh, we got to pasteurize it. Like We're still going to be shady about how we create our milk, but just going to boil it off. Right. We'll fix that problem. We're going to keep being shady. <laughs> Before it became like widely industrialized or as they were doing that, people were like teaching individual households, like people were individually pasteurizing, quote unquote, because it's really just kind of like a boiling mechanism. We boil to this temperature for this amount of time, whatever it is. And there was this big like educational push to educate people on what you had to do to consume your milk. Then like the owner of Macy's <laughs> in New York set up these like, what did he call them? It was like a milk station or something. I don't know. The Milk Depot maybe or something. <laughs> And he set up like this area that moms could come and sit and learn about milk and pasteurization. And he would have some pasteurized milk happening. And then he said he wasn't able to like keep up with the demand. So he like started expanding. And I'm like, so Macy's had like a full milk operation at some <laughs> point. Like, what the fuck? So while you're shopping, you can pick up some pasteurized milk on your way. <laughs> Honestly, this shit was blowing my mind. Like Macy's is in the milk business? Obviously money. Macy's got money somehow, right? I assume. He wasn't doing that for the love. <laughs> money talks. <laughs> is buying raw milk illegal? There's an episode of Shit's Creek. I don't know if you ever watched it. It's about this like rich family. They end up losing all their money. And they have to move into this shitty little town called Schitt's Creek and a couple seasons in dad wants to invest in raw milk because he's like oh we can make a profit off of selling raw milk but in the episode they say raw milk's illegal and they end up getting caught and they have to like dump all their raw milk I didn't know is it is raw milk illegal I think it's illegal in some places okay I think so, state by state they allow it they sell raw milk in New Hampshire I don't know about Massachusetts. You guys have live free, die hard. <laughs> so you guys can do whatever you want. No, drink it right from the teat if I want. <laughs> um, and I think interstate commerce was illegal. So. so you can't travel with it. Like I can't go to New Hampshire and buy raw milk. And bring it back if it's not legal in your state. I don't know. I don't know how that all works. But this, there are illegalities associated with raw milk. Okay. I'm trying to Google really quick if it's raw milk illegal in Mass. It's legal to buy raw milk in Massachusetts. There you go. The whole pasteurization and raw milk and all this conversation. Again, it's it's very relevant and current conversation, even though it's like we're talking about history here because like we're trying to decide if we're going to start drinking raw milk in our household. In Schitt's Creek, they made it seem like raw milk tastes so much better. Like really good. It's interesting that you say that because I think the pasteurization process, you lose some of that taste, right? And then Europe versus US, you know how they have milk in bags like on the shelves that's not in the fridge? Mm -hmm. That's because they ultra pasteurize. So they go like, I don't know if it's to a higher temperature or for longer. It's ultra pasteurized. Oh, all right. And so that's why it can sit on a shelf. It doesn't have to be refrigerated and it can stay good for like months, like three to six months or something. So when the world's ending, I'm getting boxed milk because it can last. They say that the European version, it has like a cooked milk taste, almost burnt. You're bringing it to such a high temperature. So it loses the flavor. It's not as flavorful as our milk. And then our milk's not as flavorful as a raw milk. Now I'm questioning <laughs> what I want to drink. My husband was like all about it. And then we were with somebody for Easter and they were talking, a family member was talking about how in the olden days they had raw milk and how it would like separate. Like it doesn't, 
So I guess like pasteurization is different than like homogenized milk, which is like the fat globules get like all interspersed so that it's like homogeneous mixture instead of it just being like fat globules floating around. And I guess if you let it sit, like they'll all float to the top. And then what? And that's like the stuff that you would like scrape off and make like butter or like buttercream or something with. And as soon as my husband heard that the milk was going to separate, he was like, he was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I might be out. He's the one that doesn't like the fat in the country crock bucket in the fridge. He gets grossed out by that. Yeah, he's an interesting character. (laughs) Eggs, real quick. We're going to talk about eggs because we're talking about the difference between U.S. and Europe. What we do with eggs is different too. So they don't put their eggs in the fridge either in Europe, supposedly. In the US, we use a washing technique to make sure the outside of the egg is clean so there's no bacteria that would cause like salmonella outbreaks and shit like that. So, lavande qu'il qu'on se bon, they wash it all, <laughs> but then you lose like apparently the outside of the egg when it first comes out has this like protective coating or membrane around it. And that gets washed off when you use soap and water on it. And so then you have to refrigerate it because now it doesn't have this protective seal and it's like more susceptible to getting whatever other bacteria from the environment and whatever. I don't know. So you're washing it off to get rid of one bacteria, but then you have to put it in the fridge or whatever it is so it doesn't get another bacteria. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So in Europe, they don't wash it. They retain that protective membrane so that you don't have to put it in the fridge. And what they do instead is they go like, oh, let's just fix the problem. Let's take a step back and like fix the problem. If the problem is that these chickens are potentially contaminated with salmonella, then let's just vaccinate our chickens against salmonella. And then we don't have to refrigerate the eggs and we don't have to wash the eggs. Wow. Who would have thought (laughs) a country to think like that? (laughs) Who would have fucking thought? It brings me back to like the pasteurization with the milk. Yeah. Wait, if we just fucking take a step back, have clean, not inhumane conditions, and we just practice like sanitization practices that are normal, maybe we could just drink the raw milk. God, Europe is looking better and better. Cheese. We love cheese, but cheese doesn't love us. <laughs> well, doesn't love me. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the stuff that I read, it was kind of like cheese was discovered in ancient times, some long ass time ago. It was accidental. Like it seemed like it was an accidental discovery because cheese requires like some enzyme from the stomach of the cow or the animal in order to turn the milk into a curd. Our science teachers love listening to this episode. Hope you're listening, Mr. V. Hope we're making you proud. (laughs) He's going to drive his car off the road when he hears this. He always messages me and tells me that he's laughing so hard when he listens to our episodes that he almost drives his car off the road. So when he hears his name, I'm going to have to warn him because I don't want to read about him on the news. Right? Good, Good call. I was reading that it was almost an accidental discovery because... They used to use the intestines to store all kinds of shit of the animal intestines was always used for various purposes. And that they potentially were storing milk in an intestine somewhere. And then it started to curdle and they were like, jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it was the best kind of accident. The Portuguese are still using those intestines for all kinds of purposes. They did not let that live or stay in ancient times. Bring that to current. Just thinking about that makes me just like want to vomit. You don't want to know how the sausage is made. No. So I just thought that was interesting that it was potentially an accidental discovery. This shit starts curdling and someone was like, should we eat it? Like, (laughs) yeah, definitely. Do we know how cheese came up? Like the name of it came about? Like, how did someone know to call it cheese? Uh, There's a whole section on the Wikipedia page about at the etymology associated with this word and i think it was like it's always from the latin right i think there's like 
milk casein, like C-A-S-E-I-N or something to that effect. I don't know if I'm spelling that right. From case, you got like different variations in Latin of like ke, case, cashew. <laughs> it somehow turns into that. Got it. Okay. Cheese. With the Latin, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You can look it up. The real, there's, there's like five paragraphs. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> summarizing in a really bad way here. The other thing I started thinking about when I has had this picture in my mind of the curds coming out in this whole stomach or intestines, and then there's like a liquid component and then what curdles, right? And it's called curds and whey. And I'm like, curds and whey? That's what fucking Miss Muffet was eating on her toughest. <laughs> Oh my god, you're right. How do you remember these things? Your memory's impeccable. Like I just you remember these things from so long ago. Well, if you hear curds and whey, I mean it's only one place you've ever heard that before, right? Right, right, right. right. Mother goose. <laughs> I didn't get nursery rhymes right to me when I was a kid. No, no mother goose for you. <laughs> no, because it, it wasn't a Portuguese version of it. Oh, Miss Muffet, ela sente num tafet e ela tava comendo queijo fresco. Queijo cabra que ela tava comendo. How does that put a kid to sleep? <laughs> I don't know. Mas um tempo depois que ela comeu aquele queijo fresco, uma aranha veio para trás, o pé dela e aquela coisa de um médico que ela saiu ali fora. Oh my God, can you please do like audiobooks in Portuguese? <laughs> Kids in nursery rhymes. If any actual Portuguese person listens to this, they're going to be like, that was the worst Portuguese. No, yeah, it was so good. On that note, I'm like, is this just curds and whey? Like, what the fuck is this? So we need to solve this because we talked about this on an episode early on about goat cheese. And we call it, we just call it goat cheese. But what we're actually talking about when we say goat cheese in the Portuguese sense, we are talking about Yes, but then there's also that queijo vaca too, right? Well, queijo fresh is like the way it's made, but you could do it with cow milk or goat milk. Like my grandmother makes what I call quote unquote goat cheese. She makes it with cow's milk. She's making queijo fresh. My dad gets delivered. I think his guy does a combination. He does goat and cow milk mixed. Who the fuck is he doing that for? <laughs> I don't know. It seems real unnecessary. I asked my dad and he said that he makes it, he makes it sometimes. It's like two ingredients. Like there's like nothing. You need milk, a little salt, and then those rennet tablets, which is that stomach enzyme. So instead of like me actually going and slaughtering a, an animal and getting <laughs> this enzyme from their stomach, you could just go to Amazon. You could buy these rennet tablets. Someone else did the slaughtering. <laughs> so that's all it is to make it yes oh but you can use regular milk you could just use fucking regular cow's milk oh okay and you just like heat it up a little on the stove not to a boil you just kind of warm it and then for a certain amount of time and then you like pour it over the tablets and then it just starts cur- you mix it starts curdling and then you start taking the curds and putting them in like a mold yeah my mom has that mold so you start putting the curds in there and then like draining off the, the whey, the water that comes out of the milk. Little Miss Muffet, you're eating your fucking curds <laughs> and whey. The interesting part about that is, you know how it always comes in like a tub of water? Yeah. That cheese always comes. It's always sitting in some fucking water. It's fucking curds and whey. You're eating curds and whey. <laughs> Never noticed the tablets when my mom made it. Oh, I, she must. Uh, they must sell the tablets that at Portugalia somewhere <laughs> they have to have it the Portuguese store has to have the tablets <laughs> you know there's a whole aisle of tablets at the Portuguese store for that <laughs> I'm gonna look for it next time I go so it's so easy I'm gonna make it you should cottage cheese is like another variation of this cottage cheese is like curds in way yeah. Because it's kind of like this like wet, like curdy thing. I we eat cottage cheese a lot in our household. We buy like four things of cottage cheese like a week. <laughs> I I don't remember if I talked about it in this podcast, and I don't want to bring it up because it's gross. My high school shop 
teacher mentioned what cottage cheese looked like. I'm not going to repeat it. And it's it ruins cottage cheese for me for the rest of my life. <laughs> Did it start with a D and end in an ish charge? No, but like it's in that realm. More like a <laughs> more like a yeast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, our poor listeners are never gonna eat milk or cheese ever again. I wanna say, like, I've never even had cottage cheese. And then she ruined it. So I've never even tried it. I think it's like high protein, low fat, maybe. I don't know. That's probably why my husband likes it. Yeah. But he eats it with everything now, and I eat it too. Like even with like tuna, like it's you know how you do like a can of tuna with mayo. We don't do mm-hmm. mayo. We just like a can of tuna with cottage cheese. Like that's how we eat it. Yeah, sounds disgusting. To me. <laughs> you wouldn't want to eat at our house. We eat some weird shit. <laughs> so this was. I'm going to give people the official term here. Rennet was traditionally produced via extraction from the inner mucosa of the fourth stomach chamber of a slaughtered, young, unweaned calves. That's what you get in in your little Amazon tablets. (laughs) Do you think Amazon has like a farm of cows that they're just getting it from? Like, where is Amazon getting it from? Mm, You know, I think it said something about how like you could modify some fucking DNA or something and like make it up out of thin air. So who knows? It might be just Nicole chemically, genetically modified. I don't know what's happening, but don't quote me on that. By 2012, cheese was one of the most shoplifted items from supermarkets worldwide. Damn. I don't blame them. It's fucking good. (laughs) Of all the things. If you be responsible in your shoplifting, you would do food for you and your family. Right, but of all the foods in the supermarket, <laughs> worldwide, number one, shoplifting, cheese. <laughs> There's so much of it. There's so much of it. <laughs> We're going to tell you just exactly how much of it there is in our next segment. Some cheeses have additional bacteria or molds intentionally introduced before or during aging. We talked about this. These microbes might already be present in the aging room in traditional cheese making. They are allowed to settle and grow on the stored cheeses. So literally, they just put it in a moldy room, like a moldy environment, a moldy basement. And they're just like, we're just going to let that mold just settle on our on our cheese as it ages. Like, what the fuck? How do you know it's the right strain of mold? How do you know you're not black molding your fucking cheese? Right. That's what I'm like thinking about. Like, how do you know it's the penicillin? (laughs) And then tofu. So tofu is like bean curd. Yeah, it's like Chinese. Yeah, so they call it like a Chinese cheese. And it's from soybeans. Like, I don't think I like really knew that. So it's like curds and whey, but like not from milk it's from a bean bean curd i knew it was like a chinese cheese but i didn't know how it was made either and i've never had it that's what's in when you get like a miso soup right oh yeah don't don't they cut up like little squares of that into a miso soup isn't that what's in there so maybe i did have it you like miso soup right yeah and then so then this goes on to talk about some of the especially pungent smelling or mold bearing varieties of cheese, such as the Limburger or the Roquefort that we talked about earlier. Some people find them unpalatable. Such cheeses are an acquired taste because they are processed using molds or microbiological cultures, allowing odor and flavor molecules to resemble those in rotten foods. I don't understand. One author stated, An aversion to the odor of decay has the obvious biological value of steering us away from possible food poisoning. So it is no wonder that an animal food that gives off whiffs of shoes and soil and the stable takes some getting used to. Why would you want to eat that? Yeah, I don't want to eat anything that gives off whiffs of shoes and soil in a stable. (laughs) Honestly, the kids change George my whole life. I grew up, I called it the stinky cheese and I said it smelled like feet. Yeah, it does. My dog loves that cheese so much. I think every dog loves cheese. Okay, this is the last one before we move out of this section. 
The high levels of calcium in cheese facilitate the use of tryptophan in the body to produce melatonin, which induces sleep. A folk belief that cheese eaten close to bedtime can cause nightmares may have arisen from the Charles Dickens novella A Christmas Carol, in which Ebenezer Scrooge attributes his visions of Jacob Marley to the cheese he ate. This belief can also be found in folklore that predates this story. The theory has been disproven multiple times, although night cheese may cause vivid dreams or otherwise disrupt sleep due to its high saturated fat content, according to studies by the British Cheese Board. Other studies indicate it may actually make people dream less. Okay, well, one, I want to get a job at the British Cheese Board. And two, I might have to try some cheese before I go to bed. Like, do I wait exactly? Do I wait to have it like right when I'm in bed? Like I tuck myself in and get my little square of cheese and eat some? Yes, let's do that. (laughs) But also, it's like when you take all these pieces of information and you like put them all together, you're just like, okay, you're just maybe hallucinating because of the mold that you just consumed. Possibly. Just just throwing it out there. Most likely. Like 99.9%. I bet it's the mold. All right. So before we get into our next section, I wanted to mention a cheesemonger. Or it's someone that is like very knowledgeable in cheese. (laughs) And they know everything about cheese and what kind of cheese to pair up with certain wines and like fruit and like meats or whatever. Like they just they just know everything about cheese. The word cheesemonger makes me laugh because there's a show on FX, Always Sunny. They have a podcast now too. And one of the guys, they call him a cheesemonger. He owns, he's one of the guys that owns the bar, Charlie. They call him a cheesemonger because he literally smells like cheese. Because <laughs> he consumes so much cheese. Oh my <laughs> God. They, have, they also have like rats in the bar too. So that's why he also has cheese to like try to keep the rats, rats away. So they call him like a cheesemonger. <laughs> and this last season, he goes to Ireland to try to find his host friend, but ended up being his real life dad because he didn't know who his dad was the whole show. So he went to go find his friend. He thought it was a friend from his from Ireland. And his friend, his friend was a cheesemonger. <laughs> and he had a little shop in Ireland. <laughs> I just, I love the word cheesemonger. I love that word. That word is so great. But. Why was he using cheese to keep the rats away? Like, don't rats like cheese? They do, but I think he would, like, keep them... He would keep, like, cheese on him, on his physical body (laughs) to keep the rats away. Because he would go... It's a very gross show. It's a great show, though. He would go into the sewers and he would go to, like, to the basement of the bottom of the bar. (laughs) He would always do, like... It was called trolley work, so he always do all the gross work of the bar and the other two main guys wouldn't do any of that work they would like work the bar but they never had anybody that came into the bar (laughs) it's a wild show oh my god i think that's where i learned like cheesemonger for the first time was through that show and then today i was just because i got so excited about cheesemonger that i looked up like how much they get paid (laughs) what is the salary of a cheesemonger in massachusetts a cheesemonger, an annual salary for a cheesemonger is 37000 What are they calling a cheesemonger? Like, does the person who works at Market Basket in the deli, like, is that a cheesemonger? So it's from ZipRecruiter.com. What is the average cheesemonger salary by state? <laughs> the lowest is Louisiana with 23000 It's not a living wage for curating all those cheeses. That's <laughs> Seems unfair. I was like, oh, could I get a part time gig as a cheesemonger? <laughs> For our nostalgia topic, we're going to take you back down memory lane, I guess. I don't know. I don't remember this, but some of you may. <laughs> there was a shortage of dairy products. For I don't know what reason. I don't know. 1950s. Uh, I'm just making this up. The government decided, as they do, oh, we're going to bail this out. We're going to bail out the dairy farmers and we're going to subsidize their dairy production. We're going to start paying them for like whatever milk they produce. And then 
they started overproducing, which I just don't really understand because like there was a shortage, so you couldn't produce enough. But then as soon as money got thrown at you from the government, you were just like could produce whatever you wanted. I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But then there was an overproduction because everyone was just like trying to fight for that government fucking money. Money. You want that cheddar. <laughs> you had that one locked and loaded. <laughs> they overproduced the milk and obviously the milk is going to spoil because it only has like a, sh- I don't know what, a two week shelf life or something. They decided, well, if we convert it to cheese, it'll last forever. And cheese like no expiration date just keeps getting better with age they converted all this excess surplus milk into cheese but it wasn't just like a one-time thing it was like just continued from whenever they started subsidizing i don't know if it was the 1970s or something i don't know and they just started stockpiling cheese the government owns stockpiles of fucking cheese <laughs> to the tune of 1.5 billion pounds billion with a b Yep, you heard it, guys. A billion. And I think it's all over the place the stored in the U.S., but I think one of the big locations is in these Missouri cheese caves underground. They have to keep it to a certain temperature. So like, there's like a cost associated with like maintaining this space. Caves of excess cheese. Is that coming out of like federal taxes? Like, we're all paying for it somehow. <laughs> one way or another, we are all paying for this fucking cheese. We gotta be. <laughs> I think the government at one point, I think it was Ronald Reagan, maybe in the 80s. Was he president in the 80s? He started being like, oh, what should we do? Like, maybe we should just start giving away this cheese to some of our food stamps or welfare recipients. So the people who needed it the most. And they, they called it government cheese. And they would like hand out your ration of cheese, like, whatever it was. I don't know. It was like once a month, you come get your government cheese. It was like a block, they said, right? Like a Velveeta. <laughs> and it was like all like nondescript like packaging and stuff. It's just like US government stamp on it, like just government cheese. And they started giving it away, but like they can't even give it away fast enough. Like there's not the their surplus doesn't go down. They just surplus just keeps going up every year. Cause there's just so much of it. That cheese can't be good. I mean, I'm not trying to fucking eat cheese that's been sitting in a government cave since 1975. You think that cheese is getting thrown into the markets today and we don't know about this? That could be like a government conspiracy. Why are we still adding to that surplus? Yeah. Like every year they just come in. This is my new row of cheeses. And so like Europe has had their own cases of surplus of certain things. And so they had like what they called Butter Mountain at one point. Butter Mountain, there's <laughs> this butter surplus. They've also had wine surpluses that they called Wine Lake. Like there was enough wine to fill a lake. <laughs> COVID created more of a wine surplus there because like a lot of the restaurants were closed or shutting down and everything. Yeah. So like they weren't. I read something about that with the restaurant. Why is this not just like a free market? Like if nobody's buying your product, stop fucking making it. Right. And then at this point, since there's so much of it, could we just like, I don't know, donate it to other countries that might need it? There's people in our own country that need it and we're just fucking stockpiling it in a cave. No, like take care of our country first and then can you donate some wild? That cheese can't be good hanging around for that long. Like you can't just keep adding to it and not find it subtracting any. Do you think when they give it away, do you think they're taken from the front or the back of the pile? <laughs> if you go and get your cheese, are you getting December 13th, 1971 cheese or are you getting last year's cheese? You would want last year's cheese, right? I mean, maybe it's aging like a fine wine in there, but I think I'd want the new stuff. I think I would want the new stuff too. It's got to be easier to access too, right? Like it just went in there and you could just like pull it out versus like where in the cave <laughs> is the 1970s cheese. But I think that's the problem with the, that's laziness is just grabbing from the front and never going into the back to grab the cheese in the back. So that cheese in the back 
is never going to get picked from. <laughs> they got to rotate. They got to have like a rotational system. Somebody's there needs to be a cheesemonger in there rotating the cheeses. <laughs> Agreed. Pay them a fair wage <laughs> and let them rotate cheese. There's got to be like, do you think this is a manned warehouse? <laughs> Government salaries are transparent. Like, I need to know if there's somebody working the cheese cave on a government salary. Do we see if we can get a tour of this? Or do you think it's on the hush and hush and we can't? You think it's like an Area 51? We can't, like, you're not even supposed to know about it. <laughs> about the government cheese site. <laughs> So this is all going to tie into nostalgia even more for us because something that is so nostalgic and we actually brought it up on one of our more recent episodes because we went to 90s con and they had this recreated 90s room and there was all these got milk ad posters hanging up. And that was like every magazine had all these like stars, pop stars and stuff doing got milk print ads. They seemed odd at the time, but like I never really questioned it too much. It's a pop star that's pushing for us to drink milk. Stronger bones. But I never thought through the logic of like, who is who is paying for this? Because this isn't like a brand of milk. It's not a dairy farmer. It's just somebody wants us to drink more milk. <laughs> collectively as a whole. And I guess in my naive sense, at an early age, I thought they just wanted us to be healthy and have strong bones and drink more milk. If Britney Spears is telling me to drink milk, I was going to drink milk. It does the body good. It does. She had a great body. Like, I'm going to drink milk. And she dated Justin Timberlake. So I drink milk (laughs) and get a body like her. Ergo, you're going to date Justin Timberlake. (sighs) What a dream. We looked up these Got Milk ads. And I think this was all part of the same shebang. It's like shortage and then an overproduction and then like needing someone to consume the product. I wonder if it was almost like they, there was a shortage and they made too much and then there just wasn't enough people that were either A, drinking the milk or eating the cheese. I think you're right. Like I think there was probably also like some kind of a drop off in how much we were consuming like from the 70s i think people were consuming a lot more milk and then when you started getting into like the 90s people were maybe consuming less and then that's why they had these ads targeted to try to get your consumption back up god forbid they just make a normal amount of milk <laughs> that's what i'm just saying why couldn't you just make a normal amount you you drink a lot of milk as a kid i was single-handedly subsidizing the dairy farmers yeah you were helping them <laughs> you were part of this they said three glasses a day. I said, I hear you. I am very obedient. I am going to drink my three glasses a day. <laughs> you were. Because <laughs> so I would say, I think that's where I got my most milk was at your house. I was the target audience for these ads. I had you at my house. You who is like a full chocolate water? What is that? <laughs> my mom thought it was chocolate milk. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to diverge real quick here because of the dane cook skit of the nest quick yes so i'm from the generation which obviously you are too of the tin can nest quick like the nest quick was still in a tin can the powder in a can it, had, it was like rectangular it looked like it might have held gasoline at some point <laughs> probably it had a little top on it that you had to get a spoon and you had to like get the edge of the spoon under there and like pop it off yep Oh, yes. And I was a big strawberry milk girl. So I like chocolate milk, but like the Nesquik strawberry crack, crack cocaine. Yeah, I remember that at your house. And I went through a phase where my mom was warming it up. She was putting it in the microwave. She would (laughs) strawberry Nesquik and mix it up with that powder and then microwave it. And I would eat it hot. Like, that's so (laughs) nasty. (laughs) So that was the thing. I had that for a long time. But Dane Cook does a skit about the Nesquik. He was talking about how when you start mixing the powder into your milk, there's always these like pockets of powder that somehow don't dissolve into the milk and they reemerge up at the surface. They come shooting up like <laughs> this powdery magma from the center of your milk and they just poof, get you in the eye. <laughs> Like a sand dune. (laughs) 
It's so true though. The pattern never mixes completely. You'd always have like you you drink your cup and you would always get that little gulp of powder still <laughs> in it. Like it would not it doesn't matter how much you mix it. I wonder if the microwave helped dissolve it. Maybe your mom was onto something. Maybe she was. Quick, I don't want some right now. <laughs> I know I'm. We're we're an Ovaltine family now. You are, and you started doing that too when you were younger. You eventually moved on to Ovaltine at one point. One of my aunts put my grandmother onto Ovaltine, and I was like, "That is some old people shit." <laughs> then I tasted it, and I was like, "That is chocolatey delicious." It was so good. I'm like, I only have Ovaltine at your house, and you know what? It always hits. Just say it, always. So we're going to get into these Got Milk ads because I was only remembering the print ads with like all the celebrities with the milk mustaches and just like the Got Milk. But there was a whole series of full ass commercials. Apparently. Yeah. And they were wild. (laughs) Wild commercials. Some of their ad campaigns actually had to be taken down because they were offensive. So let's get into this. All right. So the first Got Milk advertisement aired nationwide on October 29th, 1993. And it features a historian. He receives a call to answer a radio station. (laughs) Sorry, I'm already laughing. He receives a call to answer a radio station's $10,000 trivia question. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in the famous duel? The man is shown to have an entire museum solely for the duel itself, packed with all the artifacts. He's an historian. He answers the question correctly by saying Aaron Burr, but because his mouth is full of peanut butter sandwich <laughs> and he does not have milk to wash it down, his answer, he, the DJ can't hear the answer and hangs up on him. So that ad was directed by Michael Bay. You said he did the Transformer series? Yeah. <laughs> Pearl Harbor, Armageddon, Bad Boys, and the Got Milk commercial. <laughs> it says the advertisements would typically feature people like this in various situations involving drier, sticky foods and treats such as cake and cookies. The people would find themselves in an uncomfortable situation due to a full mouth and no milk to wash it down. So they had one that was a commercial of a cruel businessman getting hit by a truck seconds after insulting someone over the phone and seemingly going to heaven, only to find out it's actually hell where he finds a huge plate of cookies and an endless supply of completely empty milk cartons. That is ridiculous. (laughs) I wish we saw these commercials. Oh, we could definitely look these up. We have to. They just keep getting like more and more messed up. So then there's one where there's a commercial airline pilot intentionally putting his plane into a dangerously steep nosedive in order to obtain a bottle of milk from a flight attendant's cart out of his reach, only for the cart to crash into a man who gets out of the bathroom right in front of the cart. That's aggressive. (laughs) Just ring your bell to ask for some milk. You don't need to nosedive the plane. Like, <laughs> what an overreaction to dry mouth. Yeah, but like the 90s, it was wild. You could just, you could throw anything on TV. So there was another commercial that the governor of California didn't like. He expressed his dislike for this one commercial and he wanted it removed from the air. It featured two children who refused to drink milk. Because they believe milk was for babies. They tell their mother that their elderly next door neighbor, Mr. Miller, never drinks milk. They see him going to use his wheelbarrow when suddenly his arms rip off. Because having not consumed milk, his bones are weak and fragile. The children scream in horror and then they frighteningly stop drinking every last drop of milk they have. (laughs) Your arms are going to fall off. (laughs) Honestly, that one pisses me off the most. And kudos to the governor of California for being like, take that shit off the air. Just a fear tactic. I need to watch that commercial in particular. I need to find that one. How do you think they did the graphics in the 90s? So I think they probably had, you know, when you like stick your arms like inside your t-shirt. Oh, yeah. And you pretend like you don't have arms, like you, you tuck them in. Yeah, that's probably how they did it. 
But talk about trauma. For what? Like, let me get this straight. You fucking bozos couldn't figure out how to create the right amount of milk for the amount of people that were drinking milk. And now you're going to scare the children into drinking milk? You're going to force us <laughs> to drink milk. That's messed up. They did a whole Spanish campaign. Instead of it just being got milk, they said the tagline was familia, amor y leche. Family love and milk. How sweet. So sweet. The way they were shoving milk down our throats is so ridiculous. Down the gullet. And they changed like the tagline later on to Toma Leche, drink milk. Someone told me Toma Leche, I probably would drink some milk. <laughs> it sounds nice. It sounds like that song, like Una Noche. Yeah. <laughs> Give me just one just night. One night. Toma Leche. <laughs> 28 degrees, 90 degrees. Your lips keep telling me you want me. Hold me close through the night. <laughs> and I know deep inside you need me. <laughs> it's about milk. It's probably about milk. Oh, my God. The California Milk Processor Board, that's who commissioned these this ad campaign. The, the California Milk Processor Board. In 2007, it threatened a lawsuit against PETA for their anti-dairy campaign, Got Pus. Milk processors are demanding that people for the ethical treatment of animals and a publicity campaign that asks, Got Pus? Milk does. PETA, which advocates a dairy-free diet, has plastered the slogan on t-shirts, mugs, and other merchandise to draw attention to what it says are dangerous levels of somatic cells, pus, in much of the milk sold in this country. The pus gets there because of an utter infection called mastitis that can inflict cows raised for their milk. Oh, Jesus Christ. Why did I read that? I'm never going to drink milk again. No. One of the Got Milk campaigns was not well received. Not just the California one with the arms falling off, but there was one that actually had to get pulled because it was sexist. So this was in 2011. It was called an Everything I Do is Wrong campaign. And basically it was poking fun at PMS from like a male point of view. Like all the ads would feature men having to deal with women's PMS. And so it was like this particular one that I'm looking at right here says it has a picture of a man. He's holding milk for some reason. And it says, I'm sorry for the thing or things I did or didn't do. Like basically like just he's walking on eggshells around his woman when she has PMS. And at the bottom, it says everything I do is wrong.org. So that's like a website that they created for this ad campaign that they're promoting. And then it says milk can help reduce the symptoms of PMS, which is that true? Uh, probably not with all the fungus. <laughs> seems like it's just going to add to the bloat. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. The website that they were directing people to in these ads featured pictures of puzzled men and aimed to help them with a color-coded, quote, current global PMS level chart or something. And then they had a video apology enhancer. So like if you were trying to apologize to a woman because she had PMS, this was like a, a enhancer tool to enhance your video apology and a mistake verification system, among other features. Like it was this whole website that they created making fun of women's PMS. It's so fucked up. <laughs> Everyone was like, this is an incredibly sexist campaign and they had to pull it. Absolutely. I agree. So let's not feel bad for the men. <laughs> Let's not feel bad for the men at all. <laughs> Women go through PMS, not men. We go through pregnancy, not men. I don't go through pregnancy, but <laughs> other women do. The fact is they're pretending that women are completely irrational beings during their time of the month and they're blaming PMS. And PMS has a wide variety of symptoms. Didn't they just say recently, didn't they do a study about the pain of period camps compared to like pain with a heart attack or something like that? Men can F off. <laughs> no doubt. Don't even get me started. We're gonna, we'd have a whole episode on menstruation because it pisses me off. I don't know what has to do with the price <laughs> of fucking potatoes, but we're going to we do an episode on it. 
they also had billboards as part of this PMS campaign. So they had to like, like take down all the billboards that they had put up. But good. The billboards showed harried looking men holding cartons of milk accompanied by taglines such as I'm sorry I listened to what you said and not what you meant or I apologize for not reading between the right lines these are so (laughs) fucked could you imagine putting that billboard up today no this was only this was 2011 though this wasn't that long ago no it's not 12 years ago but things have changed so much now like, I wish there was, like, a way to see who the members of this board were. Because you just know that there were no women present in the room when they were creating this ad campaign. No. just You just needed one woman in the room to be like, you guys are a bunch of fucking morons. What are you doing? You cannot do this. I, I, I want to believe that. But as you will see, the Supreme Court today, <laughs> there is a lady. And, you know, they want to... And they banned abortion. So it's like, I want to believe that somebody at the milk ward would be like, no, that's fucked up. You can't do that. But who knows, right? (laughs) True. So from these fucked up ads, we're just going to get into our mental health because whenever we talk about sexist men, we need to (laughs) be sure to talk about our mental health right after that. So here we are in our mental health segment. Couldn't agree more. I saw a TikTok that alerted me to the fact that there had been testing done in mice where they had this group of mice and they did this test where they sort of subjected it to some kind of cherry or cherry blossom scent. And then shortly after the cherry scent, they would shock the mice like they have some kind of like electric shock and then they would get really scared. And, and they did that a few times until the mice just began to associate the smell of cherry or cherry blossom with this electric shock. So they it induced fear in them just by this scent. And they were no longer shocking them, but they would introduce the cherry scent and they would just kind of measure, I don't know how you test for fear. <laughs> they would just <laughs> check for fear in the mice. I don't know. <laughs> Do they look scared? <laughs> <laughs> Eventually what happened, so all of these mice had this fear associated with this smell. And then when, when they had offspring their offspring who had never been subjected to to the shocks and to the cherry blossoms. So what they did was like, I think they, they separated them, the fathers of these mices and the babies were like kind of by themselves with the moms and they would do that scent. And also like the moms weren't subjected to this either. And when they would do like the scent, they would get scared and they had no idea. Right. Right. And so like like you said, they separated the, the dads. So it wasn't like they were reading fear off of the dad's face and then reacting to the dad's fear. Right. They were truly just independently fearful of this smell because it had like imprinted or modified their genetics in some way before they were born. Right. Which explains so fucking much. <laughs> that explains so fucking much. I was like, when I was reading about it, I was like, holy fuck, this is like, this explains everything growing up, (laughs) like our whole lives. Well, we talked about it on an episode when we were probably maybe our like niche episode or something. We were talking about anxiety. And I think we were like questioning, is it genetic? Yeah. Your fucking trauma can be passed down genetically. According to this test, the cherry blossom test, it can be. And I definitely agree. That it can. Because you always wonder, like, nurture or nature, like, is it something inherent in you that you have this condition? Or is it <laughs> is it just the way that you're brought up? And obviously, for us, it's both. Our DNA is all fucking twisted because of them. And then <laughs> they're also bringing us up. So it's not helping. You're compounding the problem. <laughs> yeah, you can't even, like, I just imagine what what their trauma was growing up as kids and like our grandparents trauma growing up as kids and so forth and so forth like i wonder how far our parents or how far we even got from like breaking away from our trauma like we don't even know because like we just don't even know what our parents or our grandparents went through we kind of have an idea more or less with our parents 
sort of with some of the stories they've told us. Right. But some of the shit they dealt with, you're right. We have no idea how we have what no their idea. hardships were and stuff, but it was obviously hard. How much of that lives on in us? And now do you pass it to your daughter? I Obviously, you're not going to try to pass your trauma to your daughter. But like, again, the mices weren't subjected to it. <laughs> what is she going to get? What is she catching? All of our new trauma, like all this new day and age media and news, 24 hour news cycles and just negative media all the time. Like that's she's going to get that fear. Like there's always something to fear when you're consuming that. Yeah. I know like my daughter's like she's like carefree by nature because she doesn't know enough as a kid. Right. But then it's just constantly me just being like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's because I've seen something of, oh, I had this one time where I saw this thing or I read this thing or whatever that this so so happened or this situation happened. And that's what I'm like trying to prevent. But like she doesn't know that. So like when she's running around with a stainless steel straw and I'm like, <laughs> stop it. You're going to poke your eye out with that thing because I saw an article about a woman who tripped and fell and the, she impaled her eyeball on one of those stainless steel straws. I'm just I'm passing that along to her in that moment because now i give her that every time she asks me why can't i do that and i give her the re- the reason now i'm passing my fear to her <laughs> so now she'll always be worried about it and she won't run with anything but you know like running with scissors you're never gonna do that <laughs> so i don't know this was just very validating for me to know that We're not just making it up like we are the way we are because there's probably some inherent part of our DNA that is traumatized. (laughs) You you know, they grew up in poverty. There's scarcity. Like I got some kind of scarcity DNA imprint because I'm still folding up those little tissue papers. Every time I use tissue paper for a gift, fold that shit right back up nice and neat. Put that in the closet. (laughs) Tissue paper, bags, (laughs) all of it. Like this Ziploc bag's still good. It's, it's barely got used. Just wash it out. <laughs> put it back in the drawer. <laughs> so we know you guys all probably share our scarcity mindset and your time is scarce. So we'll let you go. Thanks for listening to us. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye guys.